Okay, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started uh, back into the Minor Prophets. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. <coughs> Father, we are thankful uh, again that you are a God, that you are a God of truth, uh, that you delight in leading us into truth and helping us to discover truth. Father, tonight we pray that you would speak to us fresh and anew through this old voice. Uh, Father, would you use the book of Hosea to, to convict us, to confirm uh, in us, uh, Father, that, uh, that we might be better followers of you, better equipped followers of you. Uh, and so tonight, just may your Holy Spirit come and move in this place. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> We are in uh, Hosea. Tonight is who we're going to be looking at. These, this is the third of the prophets that we kind of lumped together. Micah, Amos, and Hosea all spoke at about the same time. Uh, we'll go right down through kind of the same format that we used before. We'll talk about his name. Uh, he is uh, Hosea. Uh, very little is known about him personally uh, other than he identifies that his father is Beery which isn't any help because we don't know a whole lot about Beery or Beeri or uh, however you pronounce it. We don't know a whole lot about him either. Um, we do know that his name means salvation. Uh, it is a form of Joshua or Yeshua, uh, which means salvation is from Jehovah or salvation is from God. So Hosea means salvation. Joshua means salvation is from God. Uh, and it's also related to the name Jesus. Uh, Hosea, Yeshua, and J uh, Jesus are all very similar names. They're all related. They all are, have the root uh, founded in the word salvation. Uh, so Hosea is bringing, really, a message of salvation. Uh, it's one of condemnation, but as many of the prophets do, he ends on a very positive note that God will restore his people. And he's offering them uh, salvation throughout his message. His home, uh, we, we are again guessing because he doesn't identify where he is from, but we are assuming it is from Israel. Uh, he was really the first prophet to appear in Israel in many years. If you remember, Micah and Amos were both from Judah, but spoke to Israel. Uh, this, is a, this is a hometown boy. Uh, this is one of the Israel's own that has been raised up as a prophet to speak to them. Uh, not mentioned a specific city that he is from, um, and some have questioned where he is from. In uh, Hosea chapter 7, verse 5, this is what tells us we, be we believe that he is from Israel uh, and not Judah like the other two. Chapter 7, verse 5, he says, On the day of the festival of our king. Uh, and so he sees the king of Israel as his king. Uh, if he were from Judah, he would not have said our king. Uh, so we believe that he is from Israel, uh, possibly living in the town of Bethel or in that area, which if you look on the map, and I'm sorry it's so small, the, the wording is so small, right in the middle of the map, uh, just above the Dead Sea, uh, right there uh, uh, in the middle is, is the town of Bethel which really was the main place of worship for the northern kingdom. Uh, the city of Samaria was more of the government, uh, where the, the center of government was. It was the capital. 
uh, but Bethel was more the place of worship. Uh, and so he probably lived in either Bethel or Samaria, one of those two cities, because he speaks as one very familiar with Israel, very familiar with what's going on in the priests, very familiar with what's going on in the government. So we're putting him in one of those two cities. Um, while Amos was an outsider from the south, and he brought a very harsh, judge, uh, harsh message of judgment, Hosea's is much more of a softer. Uh, rather than pronouncing judgment, it's more of a plead, uh, more of a pleading to the, to the people for repentance. He wants them to turn. These are his people. These are the people he knows, the people he loves, the area, the towns, uh, the king. These are the people that he wants to see them uh, turn and repent. Uh, and so he speaks uh, this, this idea of, of Amos coming in very harsh. And if you remember Amos, where did Amos grow up? What was Amos as a, what was his occupation? Fig pricker. Um, he, he was a, a shepherd and took care of the, the fig trees. And so he was, he was much more harsh. He was a rugged man, an outdoorsman. Um, we don't get that same feel with Hosea. Hosea may very well have been a priest or, or worked in the temple uh, or in some sort of government position. And so he comes with a much softer, uh, which I think probably speaks to his personality a little more. As far as his occupation, we don't know. Uh, like I said, he seemed to have some high office, uh, possibly in the priesthood because of the familiarity in which he spoke about those things. Uh, he had some knowledge of them. To put a date uh, on Amos uh, or on uh, Hosea probably came after Amos, uh, probably in that 750 B.C. range. Um, some speculate that he may have been sent by God as a result of Amos's message. Amos may very well have gone into Israel lowered the boom, very harsh, and then Amos, or Hosea came in with the, the message that, you know, if, if you don't repent, this is going to happen almost immediately. And so Amos came in, lowered the boom, Hosea came in and offered grace, peace, and, and a chance to repent um, with that. Uh, some of the background, a uh, little review time. We looked at the social picture uh, under Micah. Uh, what was the social picture? What was the culture at socially? What was some of the problems, some of the things that were going on socially? Very much affluent. Affluent where? Because not only were they affluent, they were also very much poor. There was a big gap between those that had and those that did not have. What else do we know? Socially, what was going on? What usually happens if you have one group that has a lot of wealth and one group that has very little? A lot of fighting, a lot of, a lot of arguing back and forth. There's going to be things, are the poor going to be treated fairly? Probably not. And there was injustice among the poor. And that's, Micah did not like that. Micah could not... Uh, could not tolerate the injustice that was there. Um, what was the political picture with Amos? Amos spoke of the political picture of the time. Remember, they're all, this is all happening at about the same time. What was going on politically? 
who is in power? Who is the world power at this point? Assyria. Assyria was the world power. They were in the north, um, and they had, if you remember, they tried back in Elisha's time, 100 years prior to this, they tried to come in and overthrow. Uh, They were bent on getting as much of the world conquered as they possibly could. Um, Israel uh, formed alliance with many. I think there were about 10 different nations that rose up and fought them off. And Assyria went back home and settled for about 100 years. And it was during those 100 years that the wealthy became very wealthy and the poor became very poor. And the injustice began to develop within Israel and Judah. And 100 years later, Assyria is now coming back into their desire to conquer the world. Um, And Israel is, if they do not repent, is going to feel the force of that. Um, And so that's that's what's happening politically, the rise of Assyria. Now, Hosea paints for us the spiritual picture so that we get a much more complete picture of what's going on in Israel and Judah at that, at that point, specifically in Israel, as, as that is who he is talking about. Israel's spiritual decay kept pace with her social decay. That is very important for us to understand. Israel's spiritual decay kept pace with her social decay, which kept pace with her political decay. It could go either way, yes. As the spiritual decayed, the social would decay. It all worked hand in hand. So we have to understand if we as a nation, and this is, the, this is what we are to learn today from Hosea, that if we become spiritually decayed, we will become socially and politically decayed as well. Um, and so you can sometimes look at the state of affairs Uh, If you look at those three areas, how are we politically, how are we socially, that will give us a pretty good idea of how we're doing spiritually. Uh, If if those other two are messed up, spiritual is probably messed up too. Um, And so Israel was in that state. Israel had uh, a number of things that were going wrong. Uh, Four that I've, I've highlighted for you. The first one is spiritual adultery. Uh, that was a, a big one throughout Israel's history, uh, where when I mean spiritual adultery is that they were the bride of God, like we are the bride of Christ, but they were fooling around with other gods. Um, and so when we think of physical adultery of the husband and wife and one of them cheating or going out and finding another mate while they are still married, uh, this is what Israel has done. They have gone out and found other gods. Uh, while they are still connected to Jehovah. And God will not tolerate that. That was a sign of decay, of the decay. In fact, one of the things that had become commonplace was temple prostitutes. Um, that prostitution actually became a form of worship in the temples. Uh, hard for us to wrap our minds around as to how those two would ever go together and equate, uh, but they found a way. And again, if you're going to spiritually decay, that's pretty far down the road when you've reached this point uh, to where part of your spiritual worship is prostitution. Um, and they would actually have slave girls that, they, that were in the employ of the temple. And men could come in and worship 
with them, pay. The temple got the money, and then they would go on their way. Um, so I think it was somehow in the fact that you were paying the temple that made it worship. I'm not sure how they equated that or rationalized that. But that speaks a lot to where Israel was at at that time um, with the temple prostitutes. So spiritual adultery was a big problem. Also, they were ignoring God's laws, and they had a lack of knowledge. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we're going to read all of chapter 4 in a little bit because I think that's the, the key part of what, where we can learn as to what Israel was doing. But in verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Now, this lack of knowledge, therefore, was the fundamental downfall of Israel. They did not know truth. The priests and the, and the prophets of those days, other than the few that we're looking at here, were not promoting or teaching truth. It, it was a, a false prophecy. They were false prophets. And so what we see is they simply did not know who God was. Israel, who is God's chosen nation, did not know who he was. And he said, that will destroy you. When, when you no longer know who God is, when you ignore God, when you ignore the truth about God, that is the first steps of destruction. A, a nation will not stand without a knowledge of God, w without abiding by that truth. Eventually, it will fall. It will be destroyed because it cannot operate. It cannot function apart from God. And you look at every major world empire in the history. Did any of them last? No. Eventually they all fell. Eventually all of them fell because they went away from God or, or they were always away from God. And eventually that will destroy a nation. But God is upset. <clears throat> Hosea is upset because my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Now, that word knowledge, interesting. I did not know this. I got a little... Uh, uh, a lesson not only in Hebrew, but also in our culture of today. That word knowledge is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A. Now, where have you ever heard the term or the word used yada? Yada, yada, yada. You know, if I'm telling you a story and, well, you know, we went down the other, to the store the other day and we were going to Walmart and then, they, you know, yada, yada, yada. That makes sense if you understand that that word means knowledge. Because what I'm saying is I'm telling you a story and you already have the knowledge of all the rest of the things. I don't need to fill in the details. All I am saying then is, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know the rest. Now, Seinfeld made that phrase, yada, 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 a cultural term in this day and age. Interestingly enough, Seinfeld is what? Jewish. It's a Hebrew word. It makes sense to me now. I had a little light bulb go off in my head this week. Now I, I was able to put all of that into a nice, neat little package, and now I understand yada, yada, yada. You'll be destroyed for lack of yada. 
for a lack of knowledge. Now, there's another side to that word yada that we need to understand because this is what makes it so destructive when we don't have it. That that word yada is also the Hebrew word for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. If you remember in the King James, and this is one of the few times where I like the King James better than the NIV. There's not a whole lot of them, but this is one of them. It says in in Genesis that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Abel. Adam yada Eve. Adam knew her. We are to have that same, not in a, in a sexual way with God, but in an intimate. It is the most intimate. If you th- understand the sexual relationship as the most intimate uh, part of a relationship between a husband and a, and a wife, and you equate that, we are to have that kind of an intimate relationship, a deep, intimate relationship with God. And it is for lack of that knowledge, of that knowing intimately God, that Israel would be destroyed, that they have lost that knowledge. They lost that intimacy. Um, Israel's destroyed for lack of knowledge, for lack of intimately knowing God. That personal relationship, that love relationship where God unconditionally loves us and we out of faith unconditionally love him. And he shows that love by guiding us, directing us, protecting us, providing for us, and we show our love to him through obedience. Israel was doing none of that. God still desired to guide them. God still desired to, to show them the right way. He continued to send them prophets. They continued to ignore. They continued to push him off. They continued to shove him the other way and look for other gods, look for other providers. And so, and this is one thing that, that, that Israel had to regain, is that yada, that intimate knowledge of who God was. So they ignored God's laws, and they had a lack of yada. Okay, the third one is the worshiping God indeed, but Baal in their heart. Or maybe even a better one would be worshiping God in word, but they worshiped Baal in their heart. Baalism flourished. Now, I don't have a lot of details on what Baalism is. It's just another God, uh, another, another God that they worship, another form of worship. The prostitution was a part of Baal worship, uh, part of the false God that they brought in uh, to the temple. Um, and, and it was just one of many forms of idolatry uh, that they were a part of. A lot of pagan rituals, uh, they kept to a form of religion but only as a show to men. And it was repulsive to God and the prophets. What they were doing, they were calling it worship. And it was in the temple. And they were ritualistic about it. They were religious about it. They did it every Sabbath. They were content. But it was an abomination to God. It was repulsive to Him. Uh, It was not spirit and in truth. Uh, And so their worship became a, a stink, if you will, in heaven. So they worshiped God in in word and deed, but not in their heart. And then there's a lesson in that for us, too. And we can sometimes find ourselves worshiping just out of rote. We do it, but the heart's not in it. God's after the heart. God is after the emotions, the soul of a person. That's where the intimate, that's where the yada lives. 
the yada is formed in the heart, in the, in the deep of set of our emotions. Um, and that's where our worship of God needs to be. Fourth thing is he ignored the, they ignored the prophets of God, the true prophets. Uh, they were taking in all the prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Uh, but if they got a prophet who wouldn't tell them what they wanted, they would ignore them. Uh, and so they were ignoring the true prophets of God. So that was kind of the, there, there's where we're at. They, they have uh, a lot of problems in the, their spiritual adultery, their lack of yada. Uh, they're, they're worshiping in deed, but not in heart. They're ignoring the actual messengers of God. And so you can just kind of see the picture as to what is happening. Bill. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we don't have prophets, we have the word. Uh, the prophet brought the word. We have the word. Um, and so we don't necessarily have the prophets like we, not that prophecy still, I mean, there is still the gift of prophecy that is active in the church today. But we don't have the prophets of God that are coming through uh, simply because we've been given the word. Um, and it is, is made available to us. Um, several translations. I just talked to a, a gentleman on the phone this afternoon. Uh, he texted me. He said, I just want to ask a quick question. He said, we're looking at parallel Bibles, uh, otherwise ones that offer, you know, two translations side by side. He said, what would you suggest? And I'm like, I don't know. There's about 50 million different. <laughs> what do you want on the? So I got to looking. I went online and started looking at parallel Bibles. There's not, I don't use parallel Bibles, but um, I started looking and they now have them with four translations side by side. And so I'm like, OK, we have the word coming out our ears, the availability of it. But yet sometimes we still lack yada, even though we have it. We've ignored the word. We haven't studied the word. We're relying upon other people to tell us the word. Uh, rather than getting in and, and chewing on it ourselves and, and making it a part of, of who we are. That's what God's wanting that it becomes a part of who we are, uh, that people see us and see the Bible. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the cliche is, you know, you're the only Bible some people will ever read. You know, as they see your life living it out. Uh, Israel lost that. Israel lost that. Well, the message that Hosea was bringing to confront all of these things uh, starts with a message that God gave him in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So the very first message that God delivers to Hosea rather than through Hosea is you need to go marry an unfaithful wife. <clears throat> Her name is Gomer. Okay, that, that's a bad, just, I mean, her parents ought to just be slapped, all right? You name a girl Gomer, all right? You're, just, you're setting her up for trouble the rest of her life, and she found it. Um, I'm sorry, you probably, maybe you have relatives that are named Gomer that are girls, and now I've offended you. Um, Gomer, uh, what we know about Gomer uh, is really very little. Uh, Hosea was to marry, he says, a prostitute. Uh, the NIV is nice and says an adulterous wife. 
I think the King James says the harlot. Uh, they come right out and, and say it plain and simple. Um, but Hosea was to marry a prostitute. Now, some debate whether she was a prostitute at the time of their marriage or became a prostitute after their marriage. Now, it would be fitting. I don't know that it matters either way which way we go, but it would be fitting for the illustration, for the message, if, she, if he married a faithful wife who became unfaithful. Because Israel, she represents Israel in this story, and Hosea represents God. Okay, so Hosea the prophet is, is representing God. Gomer is representing Israel, his bride. And so at one point they were together. They were faithful. And now Israel has become that spiritual adulterer. And so uh, it, would stand, it would be reasonable to assume that Gomer was at some point a faithful wife who became unfaithful uh, over time. And so... Uh, Israel was this unfaithful bride. Uh, and no doubt she became one of the temple prostitutes, uh, especially if Homer worked there. Or, I mean, Hosea worked there. Um, that may very well be where uh, they met or where you know, she got involved in that, uh, through that. But the message of, is clear. Israel has become an unfaithful bride to God. And the prophet of God has brought this illustration to life in his own household. Um, and she was going to bear him children uh, the same way as, as Israel was bringing forth new generations that were going to be unfaithful. Uh, and so uh, Hosea no doubt felt really close and understood what God was feeling. That here is this wife whom maybe he loved, uh, at some point, again, we don't know the whole, we don't know the relationship, the story. Uh, I can't help but think they, he loved her at some point, uh, and now she has gone and betrayed and become unfaithful. He would understand how God feels uh, with that betrayal. So she gives him three children. She bears three children. The first is Jezreel, a son. Uh, Jezreel, that word means God scatters. Uh, and so God was going to scatter Israel is what this meant, uh, that God was going to take the, the generations of Israel and scatter them throughout the land. Uh, it was the place, if we go back and understand what Jezreel is, Jezreel was a place. Uh, in fact, I don't know if it's on that map. It was on a map that I was looking at. Yeah, if you go, Bethel is in the middle, goes straight north, and there's a valley of Jezreel. Uh, Mount Tabor on the east and Mount Carmel on the west, and the Valley of Jezreel runs between those two mountains. Um, Jezreel is the place where Jehu lived. Um, back in 2 Kings chapter 9, <coughs> is the story of Jehu and what happened at Jezreel. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1 says, The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. 
So the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to, you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Bahasha, son of Ahijah. As of Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. Okay, uh, you don't want to hang around after a message like that. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, Here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. If you go on and read the rest uh, of 9, Jehu does do exactly what God told him through the prophet Elisha. He went in and wiped out the entire household of Ahab, uh, who was at that point the king, and then he took over as king. Uh, But in the end, God destroyed Jehu. Uh, God went up and and killed him uh, because... Even though he carried out the orders of God, he did it for selfish motives. He didn't do it because God instructed him to. He did it because he wanted to be king. And so he was probably just looking for a time, looking for a place to overthrow Ahab. And God gave it to him. God opened the door and he ran through it. But later on, God overthrows Jehu and and kills him as well. Uh, His motive was one of selfishness. And so... Now he is being punished uh, for, uh, for what he did to, to Ahab. And so every time Jezreel's name is mentioned, they immediately go back to that historical truth of what happened at Jezreel with Jehu and Ahab and, and, and seeing God's judgment and seeing how even though they were being obedient, their motives, their heart wasn't right. Remember, that was one of the things Israel did. They worshiped God on the outside, but they were worshiping Baal on the inside. And so that's what the name Jezreel would constantly bring up, that Jehu did that. Worshiped, obeyed God on the outside, but he was all about self on the inside. Um, And so the lesson is that we can do the will of God and still not receive the blessing of God if we are serving with the wrong motive. And so we have to always check our heart. We have to always check our motive. Why is it that I'm doing this? Why, why is it that I want this position? Or why is it that I want to serve in this, in this way? Is it for me or is it for God? Because it may sound really good to, to do that thing, and it may be really good to do that thing, but if we're doing it for self, there's no blessing in it. So we always have to check our heart. That was the, that was the story behind the sun Jezreel. But we always have to check our heart. We always have to check our motives. Well, after Jezreel was born, we see that Gomer gave uh, Hosea a, a daughter uh, named Lo Ruhama. Lo Ruhama. 
was the daughter's name, and that means not loved. Okay, again, unfortunate name for the girl. Um, she's basically known as unlovely, unlovable, not loved. Uh, and that, that's what the Hebrew word is. So it would be like me naming my daughter unlovable. And so every time you would see her, you would say, hey, unlovable. Unfortunate. Uh, but again, it was a message to Israel as to that they had become unlovable. In fact, this may even indicate that the child was not even biologically Hosea's. Remember, Gomer was a prostitute in the temple. And so she may have gotten pregnant by anyone that came in. Um, and so this, this idea, the message was a fear that, that God would no longer show pity or love to Israel, that if they continued to live the way they were living, they would be an unlovable child of God. They would be, uh, they would be, be pitied, uh, that God would show them no pity. Uh, we know that while uh, Assyria bore down on Israel, God had pity on Judah. Remember, we looked back, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, or the last time or the time before, in Isaiah chapter 37, that as Assyria was coming down at this point, um, and uh, it must have been with Amos as we were looking at the political setting, uh, Assyria came down, went through Israel, conquered them, and as they started to go into Judah, God stepped in and pitied Judah and slayed 185,000 Assyrians in one blow, and Assyria pulled back. And Judah continued to live on until uh, they were eventually overthrown later on. Uh, but he would show no pity. He would show no love for Israel at this point. Uh, any salvation that came to Israel would not be in their own power or their own ability, which is what Israel counted on. Israel counted upon their fortified city. Samaria was a strong city. It was a wealthy city, and they were counting on that protect them. It, either they would conquer the incoming nation or they would pay them off. Uh, either way, they were going to be able to take care of themselves. And God says, no, I'm raising up a, a country so big that you will not be able to overthrow them or outpay them. They're going to come in and take everything. And so the lesson for us is that we can't rely on our own power and our own ability. And yet many times that's what we are relying upon. We're relying upon ourselves to get ourselves out of situations. We're relying upon ourselves to figure out what the next step is. Uh, what, what do I need to do with this? Well, let's sit down and let's logically think. Here's the pros. Here's the cons. Okay, well, let's, let's wait. What if we started with prayer and sought God? Because God may very well say, you know what? The cons outweigh this, but watch what I'm going to do. And we miss out on God because we rely upon ourselves. We rely upon our own abilities, our own power, our own gifts, our own talents to get us through. And God says, I want to take you through deep waters. Remember, we, we've talked the last few weeks about how suffering is a huge part of what God wants in our life. Because he can glorify himself through suffering. And so we have to, you know, we work really hard to avoid suffering. But sometimes it's the very thing God wants to take us through. Because he knows on the other side is blessing, is his glory, is a peace. 
is another step, another adventure that, that we would totally miss if we didn't go through. And so while Israel was relying upon their own power, their own abilities and their own wealth, God was saying, you need to rely on me. You know, you're to be pitied. You're not lovable of yourself. In and of yourself, you are not lovable. Now, that's hard for us to, to accept, but that's true. Because me without God, not lovable. Me without Christ's transformation and the Holy Spirit, there's still parts of me that aren't lovable. Imagine what I would be like without God's power. What would you be like if God had never entered into your life? If you relied totally, solely upon yourself, where would you be? I shudder, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. Because I got a pretty good idea where I would be. Because I know my natural tendencies. I know my natural sin nature and, and where it points me and where it takes me. And if I was to go there unrestrained, what a mess. Not lovable. One to be pitied. And God's saying that's what Israel has become. Because you relied on your own power. You relied on your own strengths. You relied on your own abilities. And now I'm going to come in with my power. Uh, the Zechariah, I gave you the, the verse. Zechariah chapter 4 says, So he said to me, this is the, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's how we're to live. We're to live our lives by the spirit, not by might, not by power, not by incredible intellect or incredible wealth or incredible strength or incredible uh, ability to, to wiggle our way out of situations. But by his spirit. By his spirit. Well, after... Uh, after the daughter was weaned, we find that uh, Gomer had another son whom she named Loami, or Loami, or however you pronounce it, Loami, which means not my people. Oh, that was harsh. Loami means not my people. And this is an indication that at this point, I think Hosea knew this son was not his. There might have been some question about the daughter. There's no question now that this, this child is no longer a child of the prophet. This nation is no longer a nation following after God. Lo am I, not my people. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And now he declares, I have been walking with you. You have been walking away from me. You are no longer my people. Can you imagine if God said that? If God just suddenly said, mm -mm, I'm not even going to help you anymore. How far away do you have to be to where God takes his hands off? I'm sure there have been human beings that have gotten to that point. I believe there's a point out there. Not so much a point to where God takes hands off, but there's a point where you no longer care that God has his hands off. That you no longer have guilt. That you no longer have a conscience. 
that, that you are no, there's no way you're coming back to God. I think there's a point out there. I don't know anyone personally that I think has gone to that point, but I think it's there. And I think there have been people that have gone that far off the deep end, that far into sin that they have become so uh, enveloped that it has just become who they are. And I'm not talking about demon-possessed because Christ called demons out all the time. But here's a, here's a person that is no longer God's people. Israel, not my people. Because now the threat existed that this relationship that was once based on love was going to be severed, was going to be separate. No longer my people. What brought them to that? What brought them to the point of, of, of Jezreel, uh, of, of being scattered, uh, of being not lovable, of being not my people? Well, we already talked about they, they lacked the knowledge of God because I, I listed things that they forgot that God is that we must never forget. Hosea brings these out. He says we cannot forget that God is one God. He is one God. He is not many gods, not Baal and Ashtoreth and, and the gods of, you know, wherever else. You know, there is one God. Chapter 2, verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Those are the words of Gomer. I'm no longer going to go to Hosea and look for what I need. Okay, and Israel is saying, I'm no longer going to God to meet. I'm going to the others. I'm going to my other lovers after my other gods. That's what Israel did. They had temples all over the place to all different kinds of gods. They were worshiping, worshiping them all. They forgot that God is one God. They also forgot that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Throughout Hosea's message, as well as Amos's message, he stresses God's power. That God is able to do anything. God is able to do anything. That we cannot overpower God. We cannot conquer Him. But God is all-powerful. He is almighty. Today, that message is that, that they went to other gods to have their needs met. They relied on other things to care for them. And so the question for us is, what have we substituted the power of God for? What are we relying on other than God? What have we turned to for comfort? What have we turned to for protection? What have we placed our hope in? For some, it would be money, a good retirement package. For some, they place hope in government. Can I just go off the record, even though this is being recorded and put on? I don't hold a whole lot of hope in the next four years. I don't care who gets elected. As, as Ravi said today, the best we can hope for is some glimmer of moral uprightness. That if it's a person who's not following after God, I don't want to follow after them. And so we can't really put our hope in our government 
to straighten this thing out. The government was never designed to straighten this out. That's why we have kings and prophets, because the king was not going to do it. The prophet would speak from God. So we go and we look at today, and it is the church that is our best hope. As an institution, not government, not education, not the school system, not, not a political party, or the church is this world's best hope. Where are we finding our power? Where are we finding our comfort? Where are we, the church, finding our hope? What is our message? Do we understand that there is one God? Do we understand that that one God is all-powerful and can do anything and is to be rightly followed? We also have to understand one God, omnipotent God, and that God is love. Hosea, as I said before, in, in contrast to Amos, Hosea was a tender-hearted prophet. And he stressed God's love throughout the book, even, even in this horrible message that he had to bring of Israel's unfaithfulness and not my people and you're going to be scattered. And there was a message of love throughout all of it, that God still loves Israel. And, and how heartbroken. I, I think Hosea loved Gomer. I mean, if he's going to be a picture of God and Israel, Hosea and Gomer, Hosea loved Gomer. And how heartbroken he had to have been with the way that was playing itself out. How heartbroken God must be. And he stressed the heartbreak of God. God's desire is to love his bride, even though she is loving another, even though she is running after many gods. God tries to restore this wayward son. We see, we see not only a, a husband and wife relationship here, the intimacy that's there in Yada. But we also see a father and son. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, when, when Israel was a child, God said, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, the tenderhearted of the son that was in trouble, in Egypt, in slavery, because of his own sinfulness, bad choices, God says, I loved him and I called him out. And yet he still rejects me, still rejects me still rejects me in the heartbrokenness of God. Hosea, uh, God is loving us, and, and he's a loving God who keeps his promises. He's still living by the covenant that he made with Israel, despite her rejection of it. Hosea points out that the main issue was not the political corruption that Amos spoke of. It was not the social corruption or injustice that Micah spoke of, but the broken covenant with God was the main problem. As Bill pointed out, it's, it's the spiritual decay that led to the, the political and social decay. And, and so for we as a nation, we need to get the spiritual decay out. And we as the church need to be the true church, the bride of Christ. And we need to act like the bride. And we need to love like the bride. And we need to do what the bride has been called to do. To love God above all others. To be obedient to God first and foremost. 
Hosea says Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. That's what Israel had become. Something that no one wants. Even when Assyria came in, they just wiped it out. They leveled it. Remember, we talked about the ground was going to be good for nothing except farming. They were totally destroying every building. The source of all evil in Israel was the dissolving of the covenant with God. That yada, the lacking yada, the lacking <coughs> the intimacy. That when that began to disappear, everything else was being lost. And so the question is to the church, are we still living out the sacred relationship with God? Or have we blended the ways of the world into our love affair with Him? And that at times we seek other lovers, is what Gomer says. Other gods, other providers. Are we steadfast upon God? Do we possess a right knowledge of Him? How well do you know God? How well do you know the person of God? intimately, in your, in your being? Could you explain to him? Husbands and wives, if you're not married, this may not, if you're not married or have never been married, this illustration may not work. The longer you are with your spouse, tell me if this is true or not, the better you know them. Good, bad, and the ugly, correct? To where you can, okay, this is a joke, finish each other's sentences. No joke. <laughs> you know what they're thinking. The longer you're with them, the deeper that relationship becomes. The more intimate that knowledge becomes of one another. Israel had lost that. How well do you know God? Because the longer we are in a relationship with Him, we ought to be able to finish His sentences. We ought to be able to know, look at a situation and know what God is thinking. He's, giving, he's given us, the New Testament tells us, everything we need for life and holiness. We have the mind of Christ. Nobody knows me like Sarah knows me. And nobody knows Sarah like I know Sarah. That when a phone call comes and I know who's on the other end, I know what she's thinking. When something happens or, or, or even if we're watching a movie and there's something that flashes through the screen, I know what's going through her mind. I know the joy that she's feeling if it's the right person on the phone. I know the pain that she's going through if it's not the right person on the phone. You don't know that. How well do you know God? We have a lifetime to build that intimacy with him, to get to know him, to, to, to relish in the yada. Israel lost it. Do we worship him in spirit and in truth? Is yada what drives our worship? Does our worship please ourselves or please God? 
There are times when I walk out of here and I feel good, but I don't know, does God feel good? Am I looking to come into worship and please him or to please myself? Am I looking to be comfortable or to comfort God? It says that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think if we can grieve him, then we can also comfort him. That we comfort the Holy Spirit in the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves. What is our motive in life? The lesson for today is do we miss this fact about God? That we rely on God's love for forgiveness, but do we appreciate that he is heartbroken over the world? Do, do we ever put ourselves in the place where, where we understand that God is heartbroken? I think a lot of times we think God is mad at the world. Because I'm mad at the world, so God must be mad at the world too. I'm mad at the Muslims, so God must be mad at the Muslims too. God is heartbroken over what's happening in the Middle East. God is heartbroken over what, over what is happening in our society with the decay spiritually of the world. And, and instead of instilling anger in me, it ought to instill a broken heart. And I should actually feel sorrow and sympathy for those that are being led astray by the false gods. For those that are seeking lovers that will never satisfy. Gods that will never satisfy. When I know the one God, the all-powerful God, that will satisfy every need. When someone doesn't have that, it should break our heart. Do we see that God is heartbroken? Do we see that God is heartbroken many times over the weakness of his bride, the church? The lack of knowledge that exists today, the lack of yada that exists within the church, within the bride today. I don't know that the bride really thinks like God all that much. We don't know him as we should. The lack of transformation in the church. When, when we as a staff, we're, we're looking for, for stories of transformation. I don't mean big, you know, bang, bang, this is, you know, I was a murderer and now I love everyone. I'm not looking for the, we're just wanting a story of change. We just want a story of transformation. And when we look into our ministries, we, we say, where are the stories? And it, we're struggling to come up with them. Because what we really want to do is we want to put them on the big screen. We want to videotape those stories as, as stories of, of, of the goodness of God, of who God is. That he is the omnipotent God of transformation, the God of change. Who can take a life that is decaying and bring it back to life and heal it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. I once struggled in this area, but now I'm victorious. My marriage was on the rocks and falling apart, but God put it back together. What I'm getting are just stories of divorce. I get stories of giving up. 
Got another text message today. Three months in, she's wanting out. I'm like, are you kidding me? Where's the yada? Heartbroken over the church for lack of knowledge. And the last thing is God is righteous. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. See, they were on their own power. They were going on just what they were able to do. They had rejected what is righteous. They had rejected what is good. What is it that God desires? Anybody remember what Micah said? Three things God desires. To act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's what God is after. He's a righteous God. So he wants justice. He wants love. He wants mercy. He wants humility. Israel had forgotten all that. They had forgotten who God was. And now judgment is imminent. Israel's unfaithfulness, her spiritual adultery, her lack of knowing God. We see here that sin is basically unfaithfulness. When we are unfaithful, we are sinful. We are not following after God. And that's the bottom line of sin. And they had done it as a nation. Not seeking God, not following after God. They looked at their own power. They set up kings without asking him. They chose princes without his approval. Their silver and gold made idols that they followed after, not after God. And so judgment is coming. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9 says, If Ephraim mixes with the nations, okay, otherwise they're kind of taking in all of their other gods, all of their other ways. Uh, you know, this is also a, a, a speaking to the church that we need to look different than the rest of the world. That if the church looks like the world, then really what power does God have? But Israel was looking. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel had followed after other nations. They had formed alliances with other nations and took on their gods, thus weakening their uniqueness as God's chosen people to the point of not my people. Listen to chapter 4. I know we're a minute till we're done, but I got no place to go. Anybody else got any place to go? Because here's what I want to finish. As I read through chapter 4, I want you to just make mental notes of what we're seeing here in Israel. What do we see in our own culture today that is similar? I haven't made my list. I'm relying upon you to put this list together. Okay, what are the things that they did that we can see happening today? So here we go. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They broke all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns. 
and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. But let no man bring a charge. Let no man accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of of your God, I will also ignore your children. The more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not increase. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people, they consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughter-in-laws to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with temple prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you commit adultery, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal, do not go up to Beth Haven, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. Now then, can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them shame. What sounds familiar? (laughs) All of it. A lot of similarities there with the culture we find ourselves living in. We, we see a rise in, in adultery. We see a rise in pornography. We see a rise in unfaithfulness. We see a decrease in church attendance. We see a decrease in, in moral righteousness. What was right is now wrong, and what was wrong is now right. Uh, we, we see a, a world that is based on you can't tell me what's right and what's wrong. My right is not, may not be, my truth may not be your truth. There is no truth. That's just chaos. That's where Israel found itself. A lack of knowledge, a lack of truth, a lack of yada. That seems to be where we find ourselves. And so the call for repentance is still there. The call for to, to, to be obedient and to follow after God. To rise and, and begin to turn and change the culture. It's not easily done. And it probably doesn't happen in one generation. And so it's incredibly important that we pass this truth, this yada, this intimate relationship with the one true God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-loving God, onto our children. And our children's children. And if we're fortunate to live long enough to our children's children's children. Because while we haven't gotten here 
in one generation. We won't get out in one generation. And we have to be willing to lay down those stories, to lay down uh, the, the, the legacy of our life to the next generation, that they can see the truth and build upon it and pass it on to the next. We have that obligation. Israel did not do that. I don't remember now if it was Denny's message, the Truth Project, or something I was reading this week. I don't always remember where it comes from, but truth's truth. That it took one generation to go from following after God to not following after God. Was it the Truth Project this morning when he said that? One generation was all it took to fall away. We need to pass that on. Now, the problem ends, the prophecy ends, as most of them do, with a promise of restoration. And God offers that same restoration today. That there is hope. That there is hope in an almighty God who is a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy. That a God who is brokenhearted over the sin of people and desires restoration, promises restoration. He will restore. He will, will heal. And we are the agents for that to happen. So it starts with us as individuals. God needs to restore us. God needs to heal us. God needs to, to have that yada, that, that intimacy between he and I. And then as a group, our church, and as a group of churches of other believers, and as a community and as a nation, to be the nation of God, to be the people of God. That's what he desires, to live through us to speak through us, to change the culture through us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are such a God, a God of truth, a God of honor, a God of integrity, a God of character, a God of power. Father, we acknowledge that we are living in a day that needs to experience that yada, that intimacy, knowledge of you. Father, would you prick our hearts? Would you, as, as Amos was the illustration of the fig pricker and, and bruising the fruit that it might flourish, Father, would you bruise our own egos? and our pride, that we would humbly walk with you, that we would act justly, that we would love mercy. Father, that we would desire the things that you desire, that we would be brokenhearted over the things that you are brokenhearted over. Father, develop the mind of Christ within us. Let us not be able to walk away from Micah and Amos and Hosea let us not walk away and say that was then, this is now. This is now. This message is now. May we be a church, may we be a community of believers that seek after you and you alone. That we find satisfaction in no one else. That we seek no other. But Father, we are faithful to you and you alone. To bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.